Have you ever had a time when you were really, really thirsty? I don't mean just a time when you felt the urge to wet your whistle, or when you might have just finished a sports game or a workout, but a time when you really were thirsty and there was no water around, and you felt your body's need for it. I've never been in danger from thirst, and probably the closest experience I can remember was a time hiking with Julia on Mount Rose at Lake Tahoe. About an 11-mile hike at 8,000 feet. A little before the halfway point, we realized we had dramatically underestimated how much water we would need. Our bottle was empty. And we carried on with our hike with not much else to do. We were nervous. I remember the feeling of not knowing whether we would be able to get more water and for how long feeling my body being thirsty, being a little bit afraid. Now, a kind soul along the way gave us a drink from their water bottle. We made it down without incident. That one little taste helped me imagine what it might be like to be in a desert, to be in a place far from water, feel the body crying out for it. On a day like today, it can be hard to get into that mental space. This is not what we're used to in California, but there are other places where water is so abundant, but it might seem like it's always available. When I first visited Portland, Oregon, I was amazed to see that city's famous downtown drinking fountains, which are literally always on. They call them Benson bubblers. They just bubble all day long. And it's the same in the city of Rome in Italy. The old fountains are called nasoni, or big noses, because of the shape of their spouts. Come along and put your bottle under the spout, come over the end of the spout, and send the jet of water upward through a second hole so that you can drink it. Clever piece of 19th century engineering that satisfies the thirst of the people of Rome any time, day or night. And I guess when you're in the lush Pacific Northwest or when you have massive aqueducts built by ancient Roman engineers, water is abundant enough that it might feel like it's always there, just around the corner. But here in California, even with this dramatic wet winter, even as it refills reservoirs and snowpacks, we have a consciousness that this is an arid place, that water is something to be conserved sometimes even rationed. And it's like that and more so in so many parts of the earth, including in the Holy Land. In so many places, of course, women and girls are the ones who collect water. It's been estimated that in some places around the world, women spend as much of a quarter of their lives collecting water, traveling to wells and back. Of course, it's this that the Samaritan woman is doing when she encounters Jesus. It happens at noon, the hottest part of the day in a very hot part of the world. It's a time, perhaps, that's significant. 
the time when most people don't do their water gathering. Most women would be there in the early morning or in the cool of the evening. Scholars point out that perhaps this woman has chosen this time to go to the well when no one else will be around. We might wonder if that's connected to her marital history, the reputation that she may have in her village. She has been married five times, the story tells us, and now lives with another to whom she's not married. And scholars through the ages have been quick to peg this woman then as some kind of sinner, someone who is to blame. We don't know that. We don't know anything about her story. She could have been divorced by five husbands who have abandoned her in succession. She could have had five husbands die. Especially in a society where a brother might have been expected to marry his brother's widow. Jesus tells a parable in another gospel about seven brothers who ended up dying one after the other, and the same wife became the wife of each of them. And so we don't know this woman's story, really. And we should resist the temptation that so many Christians have had to label her as some kind of loose woman, kind of sinner. Maybe we're better to stick to the text itself. But one thing the text does tell us is that this woman with her complicated life and history has water. Jesus is thirsty. But in another sense, the text also tells us that the woman is thirsty. Jesus has water to offer, a different kind. We don't know exactly what she's thirsty for. It could be some kind of forgiveness or healing or reconciliation. It could be a thirst for religious devotion. We see in the story that she has a keen curiosity about the right way to worship. It could be a thirst simply to be treated as an equal. A thirst for a conversation partner who respects her. This seems to happen in the delicious wordplay and this extended conversation between her and Jesus, where they're like two religious scholars debating together over the meaning of a text. It could be that she's thirsty simply to be seen and known rather than looked past or looked through. She seems to get this from Jesus, who tells her her own story in a way that she can recognize. Come and meet a man who told me everything I have ever done, she says. For any of these things, perhaps for all of these things, she finds her thirst quenched by what Jesus has to offer. I wonder what you have come to church thirsty for today. All of us thirst for so many things. We have our basic physical needs for water, of course, for food and air and shelter. We thirst for acceptance. We might thirst for a sense of home. We might thirst for excitement, for activity. We might thirst for the presence of someone that we love. 
We might thirst for pleasure. We might thirst for status, recognition, prestige. We might simply thirst for safety or for peace. Sometimes seek to quench our thirsts in healthier and unhealthier ways. There are times when our thirsts might lead us into addictive behaviors, to seeking to quench a deep inner thirst with substances or sex or shopping, with some kind of stimulation, using things that are good in themselves in ways that they were not designed for, ways that might be the equivalent of reaching for a sugary soda at the top of Mount Rose. We can also be led to do healthy things by our thirsts. Deep physical and spiritual thirsts can propel us towards creating meaningful relationships, towards building flourishing households, towards meaningful work, like taking a long drink of cold, nourishing well water. But whether we know it or we don't, our deepest thirst for the living water that Jesus offers, this water that he describes as gushing up within our innermost selves into a never-ending fountain. Our deepest thirst is for God, for the living God. As the psalmist wrote in the verse said a few minutes ago, as the deer longs for the cooling stream, so our souls long for you, O God. Or as St. Augustine put it, God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless. Find our rest in you. In just a few weeks, we'll gather again in this space, not on a Sunday morning, but in the gathering shadows of Good Friday. And we'll hear again a reading, a lengthy reading from John's Gospel. Hear the story of Jesus' crucifixion. I want to share two lines from that story, just a few verses apart. St. John's Gospel is the only one that reports Jesus from the cross saying, I'm thirsty. So in this Gospel of St. John, we see a Jesus who knows what it is to be a human being who thirsts. Jesus becomes human, becomes one of us. And he embraces the full extent of that with our weakness, with our suffering. Jesus knows our human thirst for water and all the other things we thirst for. And then just a few verses later in John's Gospel, and only in John's Gospel, after Jesus dies, a soldier pierces his side with a spear. It says that blood and water flow from Jesus' side. Christians throughout the ages have marveled at this mysterious symbolism of blood and water and have seen it often as a reference to the Eucharist and baptism, the Eucharist when we feed on Christ's body and blood in baptism. We're bathed in the living water that flows from him. 
Jesus is himself a fountain. In his death and in his resurrection, he has sprung up for us as a living fountain of never-ending water. And it's through his death and resurrection that we receive this water that flows from the heart of Jesus himself and into our own thirsty spirits. So this same Jesus who knows what it is to thirst is also the one who is able to satisfy our thirst now and into eternity. This Lent, this Holy Week, this Easter, May we come to this fountain of living water. May we drink deeply and well. Ourselves, may we become fountains that overflow and bubble up with this same water that the whole world around us might drink.